Hello, and welcome to the Buying and Selling Businesses Show. I'm Phil Jepson. Today, I've got a special guest joining me. I want to introduce you to Guy Bartlett. Guy, tell us a bit about you and how you got into buying businesses. Hi, Phil. Um, well, I guess my story goes back to uh, the 1990s. So up until then, I'd had a, a fairly traditional job and career, you know, climbed the the, the corporate ladder, so to speak, uh, albeit uh, largely in, in smaller businesses. And back then, my uh, career was in uh, marketing industry, so advertising agencies, direct marketing, and so on, and become a, a specialist in, in DM. Uh, and uh, I joined a firm in the mid-90s, ostensibly, to grow that, and we did that quite quickly. Uh, we ended up with a holding company, two separate uh, businesses, one a, a digital business and one a kind of traditional DM agency um, with a lot of high profile um, blue chip clients along the way. But we did that classic thing of kind of rapid growth and then uh, and then some extent plateauing. So the challenge in the early 2000s was how could we continue that growth pattern and when organic is difficult. So if you're I was Group MD and I'm kind of looking after clients and people and all of the different components of trying to uh, grow a, a sense of essentially an owner-managed business. And I got fascinated with the idea of could we expand by acquiring our supply chain. So a number of the suppliers in our, in our uh, industry had similar customers. Um, and then the challenge was how could we do that without any real cash to, to fall back on. So early 2000s, I started to research ways in which we as a small business, an owner-managed business, might be able to step into the arena of acquisitions in order to continue that growth rate, really. So that was the challenge that we set ourselves, and it wasn't an easy process, but managed to look at what, if you like, big players would do, looked at some of the American principles of what are called leverage buyouts, uh, and looked at funding options in the UK at the time, back then, and figured out a way that I thought might work. Uh, and that's really kind of got me to the point of the theory. What happened next was, was quite interesting. Uh, had a classic shareholder fallout, uh, left the company, uh, fractured my spine, lay in hospital going, okay, what's the universe telling me? Um, and decided to just kind of try and put my theory to the test. Uh, and lo and behold, after a, a Almost a year of kind of stumbling around, you know, making offers, making lots of mistakes. Eventually, uh, two companies said, yeah, okay, we'll sell to you. At which point it was like deep breath, swallow hard, <laughs> which you've been through. Yeah. Okay, uh, this stuff's just got real. And, and early 2006, we did our, our first two deals, really, and I kind of got that, that cycle rolling. Yeah. Just going back a bit, before you actually started buying businesses you've had you've clearly you've seen the concept um, was it completely self-taught or were there people out there that could mentor you were there people out there that you could learn from well when I left the army I, I uh, came back to the northwest um, uh, I'd grown, grown up in the northwest uh, of England before joining the, the military uh, so I kind of naturally gravitated back there rather than, than London um, and moved to Greater Manchester um, and at the time, as a kid growing up, I guess, I'd always been fascinated by some of the, the, you know, the major players like uh, Jimmy Goldsmith back in the day, for example. But one of the guys in my industry at the time, marketing services, uh, is a chap called Sir Martin Sorrell. 
uh, and I'd followed uh, what he'd done in developing WPP. Um, I'm a massive uh, admirer and fan of what he achieved with WPP and what he's gone on to do since, since leaving them. But of course, you see it from the outside. What you don't see is the kind of detail, I guess, of, of how to do it. So I looked around and I came across an American uh, who taught the process in the UK, um, a chap called Dan Penny who had worked on Wall Street, and quite a compelling story. Uh, and really just immersed myself in, in Dan's uh, principles. And he's still around today. Um, but what I found was... You could get so far into the process, but no one would ever show you how to join the final bits of the dots, which is the, well, okay, how do you do the finance bit? All the mindset, all the principles, all the, the deal structure and negotiating, all of that sort of stuff is relatively straightforward. Certainly, you, know, you can learn that from lots of different sources. Um, but it's that, it's that how do you, you know, join the dots in the real world in terms of finance, really. And that was the bit that was pretty much self-taught, um, Having run a business, I, I've become familiar with different types of funding, you know, bank finance, um, borrowing of different shades. Um, and the thing that became evident was the use of, back then, a, quite an, um, an unknown product, which is essentially um, invoice finance. Um, but that's, that's focusing on the, the cash flow, the, the financial performance of, of the business. And often releasing a component of the balance sheet which is overlooked. Um, so it's that blend of balance sheet and cash flow um, that I figured out if we could do that would probably allow us to get into the marketplace. And basically that's how we got going. Interesting. And, and you've talked about funding. And obviously these days there's quite a lot of different funding options out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a fundamental concern that some people have particularly people who own businesses who are selling and to their advisors. The whole idea about mortgaging the assets of the business you're buying in order to buy the business. Yeah. Now, you look at uh, the big corporate market, it's standard. It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, great example of that is Manchester United. Yeah. And the way that that was acquired. Yeah. Um, I mean, just, just talk about that a bit and... Um, how, how you've translated that concept into smaller businesses and also whether there's been a shift in the way that people regard it. Well, we're sat here in uh, July 2020, which has been a quite tumultuous year, really. None of us would have seen you know, what, what's happened in terms of the coronavirus and the impact on business and the economy. So I think before coronavirus came along, I, I probably would have had a slightly different view of of the answer to the question. Um, so let's go back to pre-COVID, because yeah. that's probably a sensible start point. And for me, I always found it interesting. There's two, I think there's two ends of the spectrum to answer the question. So you're always gonna find a, a percentage of business owners who have a compelling need to sell. Um, uh, and that it's really a binary option for a business owner. Do I sell or do I close? And so you've got to start with basic principles. The balance sheet shareholder funds figure is the shutdown value or something less of that. Um, so what's the flip side? If I can sell this business, I can, I can turn my asset, my, we call it blood, sweat and years, into a, into a tangible benefit really. Uh, but the price for any business is what someone's willing to pay for it. And that's a blend therefore of, of um, risk and mitigation 
all of those sort of components are going to go through the mind of the buyer uh, and the mind of the seller. Uh, and it's about bringing it together. I remember really early on in, in my experience talking to a guy who ran a, a heating and plumbing business. And he wanted to emigrate to Australia. So really good, strong, compelling reason. And the deadline to emigrate was, was approaching. So in terms of motivation and the need to do a deal, it, you know, that was quite strong. So we'd gone all the way through the process of evaluating the business, looking at the strengths and weaknesses, looking at the risk factors. He was quite a key part of the business. He was second generation, so he'd, he'd taken over from his dad. You know, the business had done really well for him and the family, and they were in a position where they could emigrate. But in his head, he was expecting me to come along with a great big pile of money and go, there you go, thanks very much, off you pop to Australia. And when we explained, um, you know, the price was the price, but the deal structure, there's a difference between the enterprise value and the deal structure, he got a bit of a shock. And he was like, well, I thought you'd just give me, you know, top dollar and I could walk away. And I went, but there's so many mitigation factors that we've got to count into that, issues that might crop up after you've gone. You know, if you just want the money and go, then there's got to be a discount for that because we've got to factor in risk factors. And so a lot of business owners don't understand that or they're not very well advised or, or they find that a difficult concept. So that's one of the issues to, to work through. Um, and there's that, there's that yin and yang almost. It's kind of the vendor wants the highest possible price. The seller doesn't necessarily want the lowest price, but it's more about risk mitigation. So when I look at a deal... It's not, I want a penny pinch or beat them up over the price. It's much more about, well, there are lots of factors that will, that will, you know, you'll uncover, even to some extent that the seller hasn't thought about in the business after they've exited or, or partially exited. And it's, it, it's trying to find that balance, really. And so on the one hand, you'll get a highly motivated vendor who's, who recognizes that issue, is willing to sit down and have a a meaningful conversation and find that common ground. And on the other end of the scale, you, you know, you'll find vendors who, I kind of call them in politely tire kickers, just intrigued with the concept of selling a business and what it might be worth, but actually don't have that degree of motivation at that stage to do a deal. And, and so it, it's working your way through that process, really. Um, and of course, the other major factor, we're talking about owner-managed businesses, really, as a marketplace. Most owner-managed businesses find it almost impossible to structure themselves with a view to a sale. So to get the best price for selling any business, you're going to have to get it ready. I call it oven ready. You know, you're going to maximise your profit margins. Well, to do that, you're going to have to reduce what we call the bobs, you know, the business owner benefits that naturally a business owner is going to want to put through their business. That's the whole point of, you know, of owning it in the first place. But they're also going to maximise the profit margin, which means you're going to pay a lot of corporation tax. And I don't know any business owner who relishes paying corporation tax. Um, you know, we work incredibly hard for our money and, and we all have that sense of government tends to waste it for us. So it's a really difficult conversation to go back to your significant other and go, hey, guess what? We're not going to take the holiday to California this year and we're going to cut back on the school fees and we'll get rid of one of the cars and, and that way we'll maximise the value of the business when we sell it because selling a business is a really uncertain process anyway. So for us, you'd think naturally as a business buyer, that improves the opportunity for us and for the seller, it weakens their position. But in truth, it's in my experience, it's about having a meeting of minds 
and we try really hard to find people that we get on with. You know, values-based deals really improves and it makes the process more enjoyable and finds the, the, the meeting ground in the middle much easier to, yeah. to, to get to. So we've talked about structuring deals and um, the way that funding can be leveraged on the assets of the business. I just want to talk a bit about price because obviously you don't look in a catalogue to see the price of a business. So when you're looking at the business for the first time, how do you start to get a feel for what the business is worth? Do a quick, a quick look is really simple. Um, you've got to get full accounts. You really need a spread of ideally at least three years because you need to see patterns in a business and they, and they do jump out to you quite quickly. Ideally, five years is best because you get that sense of the, the performance of the business. And, and it's worth noting, I think, as well, Phil, that I, I would ordinarily recommend buying a business that's at least five years old. Um, I would never buy anything younger than that anyway. Um, and I'd just quickly dial up back to the reasons behind that. The statistics, as you, as you know, uh, for success and failure of business in the UK are quite stark. So 50% of all startups fail. Um, 50% of the, the startups that succeed often don't get beyond five years and so on. So what we're trying to do in, a, in acquiring businesses that have that, um, uh, that history of performance is it, it's a bit like a tree or a plant. You know, it starts to develop longer roots. And that root system sustains, um, you know, the, the, the tree and the, and the system above, really. So the longer the business has been trading, the more sustainable and, and therefore the easier it is to do an assessment in terms of its value, long term, short term. So specifically, what I'll do is look at the most recent accounts because you've got to work on historic data. And then you want to look at, obviously, management accounts and see if that pattern is being sustained, look at forward order book and so on. But what we're really looking for is, is just dissecting the two key components. So on the balance sheet, we're looking for um, a sustainable story. Uh, we're looking at the tangible assets, the current assets, the current liabilities and any other kind of longer term structures like, like debt and so on. And if we can see a consistent pattern of margin being generated between current and uh, assets and liabilities, so debtors, creditors, um, tangible assets that have some real worth that are not really encumbered by debt, for example, uh, then, then we've got headroom. We've got what I would call equity, the equity if you compare it, say, to a house, then the equity sits there in that balance sheet. And then we're looking at P&L and we're looking at how efficient is the business, how well is the business run to generate profit. And you'll always get this approach from advisors and brokers about adjusted EBITDA, uh, earnings before interest tax, depreciation, amortization. Most people don't even know what the DA bit means, but let's not go there. Um, but that profit component uh, and then going and looking and delving into what is the burn? What, what do they spend money on? How much of that is about business owner benefits, which is fine, tick in the box, they're genuine addbacks. And how much of that is about what could you do with the business? How could you make it more efficient, centralized costs and, and, and all those sort of good cries really. Um, depreciation is an interesting one because an operating business is going to record depreciation. It's a real thing. But most brokers I've ever come across will try and add it back as if it doesn't exist, but clearly it does. So there's that sort of balancing act to do in terms of the numbers. But that's what we look for. So in terms of value, I guess it's is what equity is there in the business, as I would call it. And secondly, what, what's its profit performance? 
So we will do, most people are, con, are aware of the multiple. So two ways to value a business, really. Net asset value is a very straightforward balance sheet value. Um, and, and that's a useful start point because that's the shutdown value. As, as we said earlier on, a seller's got two options, close it, sell it, broadly speaking. So if, if, if they're going to close it, the best they're going to get is a figure south of net asset value or shareholder funds. So that's always a valid start point, really. Um, and look at that number. But generally speaking, shareholder funds will be less than a multiple, generally. Not always the case. Um, so then we go to the, the, the next option, which is multiple. And multiple is, is really the opposite of historic performance. It's kind of, well, okay, historically, the business has performed at an average of, say, 10% profit before tax. Do we think that that average performance is, is capable of being repeated after the sale? And then you've got to take into account, will the clients leave? Will they stay? Will the staff stay? All those kind of imponderables, which are the soft components, and then you look at, say, the forward order book. You know, how strong are the contracts? What's the relationship with the customers like? How forecastable is the income stream? And all of that has to underpin that multiple, the magic number, essentially. And then you'll have a conversation with a vendor, and they go, well, I want a million quid. And then you've got to, you've got to have the thing, of, well, okay, tell me how you got there. You know? And often it just sounds like a nice number. Uh, and, and you've got to try to find a way to get back to the middle ground, as I call it. You know, it's like, well, yeah, we'd all like a million quid, but how is that sustainable? And so a real simple metric is how many years of predictable profit is it going to take to get back to the number that I'm going to pay? So even if I'm going to pay 50% on the day and the rest deferred over two, three, four years, you know, is that realistic? Um, and I've had quite a number of conversations with vendors where we ended up saying, look, on your numbers, it's going to take me eight years to pay that money back. Would you wait that long? And almost invariably, they go, no. <laughs> and then you can have a meaningful conversation because it's as simple as that. You know, if, if the business generates half a million quid profit a year and they want 10 times, that's a long time. And most people wouldn't wait that long, in truth. So why would you wait that long? You know, that's really the nature of the conversation. And that's why I say it comes back to a values-based conversation. If you're dealing with someone who is completely unrealistic um, and that's not your style, it's going to be a short conversation. Yes. And value, you know, just it's almost immaterial. But if someone's genuine and they recognize, you know, what you're talking about, many business owners, for companies they've had for 10, 15, 20, 30 years even, in truth have, have had a huge amount of value out of the business and they've worked for it. That's, that's great. But the house is paid off. The, the holiday home's paid off. The kids have gone through university. They've provided bank of mum and dad for their deposits. They've done all of that, and the business has given that. So in those cases, really, the sales should be the icing on the cake. They should have filled their pension fund by now. They should be in a good position. And this is about, here's a, an elegant exit that's good for you. You're going to take the business on and create the legacy, and they're going to get a, a justifiable and fair value, but they get to walk away. Uh, and all too often... Time and time again, you'll find vendors get caught up in an unrealistic value, badly advised by a broker or uh, an accountant or whoever, and they, they get really rigid around price, and it defeats the object. It's like, take a big step back. What are we trying to achieve here? You know, oh, well, I'll just hang on to it then. Okay, but you just get older. 
you still have achieved the aim. You've not sold the business. You've still got the responsibility for the company. Even if you've got a management team running, it's still ultimately your responsibility. Health and safety, who knows? All kinds of things. And then COVID comes along. Yeah. And I, oh, okay, now I've got a problem. I've met multiple business owners who, you know, we've had conversations with, and now they're going, oh, I'm going to have to get back in my bunker. And I'm going to wait another year or two years. And what if you get cancer? What if a significant other dies? What, what happens if you have a heart attack, you know, and you haven't offloaded that business? It's almost impossible then for you to get anywhere remotely close to the value that you had when you started. Yeah. And it's that element of honesty and frankness that we always try to to get to without it seeming like it's an angle yeah. you know and that's the the challenge around valuation for me yeah. um uh, uh, i just i just think it's useful to pick up on the idea of the mortgage uh, on the previous question just to go back to that because when it comes to the deal structure it's an interesting proposition so vast majority of people would buy a house with a mortgage yeah they're not going to come along for a I don't know what the average price. What's the average price of a house in the UK now? Four hundred, four fifty. It is an elderly age. Yeah. An elderly age. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know. Three fifty. Yes, say. it's probably yeah. in the three hundred. Yeah. So, so, th- yeah. so three fifty. Mm. Vast majority of people don't have three hundred and fifty grand sat in a bank account yeah. looking for a house to buy. Yeah. So most people are going to go and get a, a mortgage. They're going to borrow money. And what's the mortgage secured on? Yeah. It's secured on the asset. The asset it's secured on yeah. So why would it be any different for a business buyer to secure funding on the asset, i.e. the target company? So I always find that a bit of a, a curious one that either advisors, brokers do this a lot. It's like proof of funds. You know, we need to see you've got 5 million quid sat in the bank account to buy this company. That at that point, I know nothing about, I've done no evaluation on, no idea whether the vendor's worth talking to, yet they want proof of funds that you've got 5 million quid sat in the bank burning a hole. Any money sat in a bank account is going backwards. So why would anyone do that? A professional buyer would not have tons of money sat around in a bank account looking for what in truth could be a very iffy deal. So the concept of of mortgaging a deal for me is entirely valid, but it's an odd one sometimes to get past. Yeah, uh, Yeah, but that's quite a good way to to put it, actually. Yeah. That is quite a good way to put it. Um, Two more areas that I just want to cover with you. Yeah. Um, the first is the whole area of, of this as an investment, mm-hmm. not not just for you or me as the as the would be owner, but yeah. potentially for someone else who's got money to invest mm. alongside us in a deal. Yeah. So if you think about the U- UK and the US markets, actually, um, real estate has been the go-to yeah. for individuals who've got some cash. Yes don't want to put it in the bank and watch it go backwards mm-hmm. and, and want to use that money to make money. Mm-hmm. So it's always been real estate. And I know a lot of people, so do you, who, who, for whom that is, mm-hmm. that's where they invest their money. But anyone who knows anything about buying businesses knows that this is a better place to put your money. Mm-hmm. So let's just talk about that for a moment and, and about how you see, if you were talking to someone who's got a million pounds yeah. in the bank, yeah. wanting to use it and thinking about where should I deploy that money. So how does this stack up against real estate? That's a great question. So I think there's a, I want to unpick that as a few interesting things to, to think about. First of all, um, I always go back to leverage and, uh, and risk mitigation. So 
core principles of any investing platform um, is think about uh, diversification and, and mitigation. So you wouldn't generally, or it's not considered wise to invest in one particular asset class. Um, so over here we've got, say, stocks and shares. Um, and most people invest in stocks and shares via a third party, via a professional uh, market advisor, if you like, a broker or, or similar. But it's, it's, a kinda, an, it's an arm's length transaction. We rely on that third party to, to make that money grow for us. And we recognize that there are different risk factors, you know, which part of, what type of stock are we going to invest in? You know, the, the more reliable the stock, the lower the, the return and so on. So we get that idea of risk and, risk and reward. Then if you think about pensions, so traditionally the pension market has been, again, an arm's length transaction. You know, we put our money into a fund or a pension manager and rely on the professional manager to, to give us a return. And again, generally speaking, that portfolio will be measured against risk and risk and reward. So we've got those kind of arm's length managed processes. Property, um, so many different elements to property. That, you know, you can you can be a buy to let landlord. You you could get into resi. You could get into commercial. You could do it arm's length. You could be a JV partner. There's lots of ways in which you can deploy your money. And again, manage that risk mitigation. A good friend of mine, Simon, runs Crowd Property. You know, that's a peer-to-peer -peer network, so you can go, right, I can manage what I put my money into. Um, Rob Wilkinson runs another one and so on. So you can go, right, I've got a lump of cash. I can manage that return, and the percentage I'm going to get back on my money is a reflection of my appetite for risk. So you, there's a number of steps you can do with your million quid and, and decide how you're going to get a return on it. But if you look at business, which is, for me, is a massively overlooked asset class, the, the major difference is returns. So I had a conversation not long ago about property, and the, it was along the lines of, there's only so much you can do with a with property, property portfolio. Um, you can improve it, you can put some cash into it, but its yield and its performance is largely dictated by outside influences. So if it's commercial property, the quality of the, of the lease, length of the lease, the, 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 the quality of, of the tenant, uh, and to some extent market sentiment as well. And also industry, the economy, appetite for people to rent your, your premises. Um, and, and to a large extent, Resi suffers the same thing. So there's a finite growth you can achieve with that asset. With a business, if you get it right, growth is infinite. You can just keep on scaling, growing, scaling, growing those businesses. So the volume of profit that the business is capable of generating, largely speaking, is infinite. Uh, if, if you have the right processes once you've bought the company to do something with it. So first of all, what are you going to buy? Is it viable? Does it have, as we talked about, does it have that long-term forecastable revenue stream? I call them bog roll companies. Everyone needs bog roll every day. So buy stuff that's repeatable and everyone needs. So, but then if you look at the fundamentals, you know, what's the market opportunity that business sits in and how could you grow it? So it's, a, it's an overlooked, and, and there are complexities in buying and running companies, we know that. But in comparison to other asset classes, the potential is huge. And in terms of the market scope, it's even bigger because the number of baby boomers um, that are in the marketplace now that, unless they close, need to sell, it's almost an evergreen process, that the volume of people coming through. But the demographics in the Western world, particularly in the UK, are very much in our favor as business buyers because 
there's this bulge of older people and that's going to continue for the next decade. So now is a fantastic time if you get all your ducks in a row to invest in that asset class. I'm not saying put all your money into it, wouldn't recommend that. I'm a big fan of Brad Sugars, uh, Action Coach International, and he often talks about make your money in business and then uh, invest in property as opposed to the other way around. So how can you do that? Well, some of the things that often get overlooked, let's say you've got a million quid sloshing around, rather than invest that money into a retail pension where it's an arm's length transaction and the reality is we know that pensions are not performing particularly well um, and that's going to get harder and harder because of the markets, because of the global economy for those professional fund managers to achieve the returns that people aspire to. Anyone's got to get a pension statement to go, when I retire it's going to pay, pay me how much? So. Options around, for example, using a SaaS pension. So if you're a business owner and you don't have a SaaS pension, you need to do that without a shadow of a doubt. Because SaaS pension allows you then to control the investment opportunity, to put that money into various assets, not just property, but you can use that to buy businesses, to buy back into your business, to make loans. It's an incredibly flexible, tax-efficient, UK-approved process to make your money work harder, back to the whole principle of leverage. So any business owner watching this doesn't have a SaaS pension, go and get one. Because you can reduce your corporation tax bill significantly with the money that you can put into into that pension and reinvest it more under your control than an arm's length transaction from traditional pensions. So those are the sorts of things that I I believe uh, merit investigation. Um, You know, people watching this or in business or whether they're thinking of buying or selling, those are the sorts of things that they should be alert to. Okay. And just building on the, the discussion about <clears throat> investing in businesses as against real estate, one of the sayings about real estate is that you make your money when you buy, not when you sell. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that is because of the reasons you've talked about with real estate, is that there's, there's not a huge amount of things you can change once you've got it. Mm-hmm. So if you don't buy it at the right price, you're never going to make a lot of money on it. Yeah. Whereas with businesses, obviously, there is more upside, there's more potential, there's more things you can do, you've got more levers. Yeah. But um, I, I just wanted to finish by actually talking about those levers. Um, my experience so far, and it's obviously nowhere near as great as yours, is that you spend a lot of time, effort, focus on the process of buying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But actually, as soon as you've done a deal, you realize that that's not the most important bit because actually that's not job done. That's just getting you to the start line and it's all about what you do from then on. So I just want to talk about the importance, the importance of that because I know it's something that is is a big thing for you. Yeah, it's, um, (laughs) well, you've been through it. So you know that kind of moment of euphoria is almost immediately followed by the OSH1T moment. Uh, okay, now it's me. All, you know, all eyes are on me and I've got I've to step up and make this work, really. So um, we can all do business plans and forecasts you know, until they're coming out of, out of our ears. And nobody ever produced a forecast that looked bad. <laughs> Every forecast under the sun always looks like, that's going to be great. But you know, man plans and God laughs. So um, you know, I've, I've never yet produced a business plan that that matches the reality um, come pretty close thankfully but never quite the reality and we and we have exceeded business plans as well um, so 
What other things? So, um, simple things for me. Uh, planning before the event. What am I going to do in the first 90 days once I've done this deal? What are the key things that I need to look at? And much of that should come out in due diligence. Um, you know, asking questions early on with the seller around what's the sales process? What's the, well, what's the marketing process? How do they generate leads? How do they communicate with the marketplace? You know, vast majority Often of the people. the answer is we don't. Correct. <laughs> a vast majority of businesses that have been in business for a long time stay in business because they've built a relationship with a given customer base. And human beings are innately lazy on both sides of the fence. Customers just want to deal with someone that delivers time and time again because it makes their life easy. And for us, we just want to deal with clients that we get to know, we've got a good relationship with, and they pay their bills. And so you reach a level of comfort, if you like, in, in that business. But we as the acquirer want to, to some degree, stir that up. We want to get it going and, and grow it. So. Questions then arise around, well, what's your marketing process? I, and I famously had a conversation, well, one of my partners did, where, uh, well, we just pick up the phone. Uh, come again? What, what do you mean? You know, this is a good, profitable company. Yeah, yeah, we just answer the phone. So there's, uh, we tried marketing once, but it didn't really work. It's just like, <laughs> okay. So that's really common. Uh, so to some extent, that's low-hanging fruit for us coming in. It's like, okay, put in a marketing campaign, a lead generation process, and all things being equal, we're going to create opportunity. Then there's the sales process. Marketing is just the beginning of that. What is the process to convert leads into, a, into an order, essentially? And again, you've seen it. Very few companies have any kind of process, sales process. Oh, you know, the boss deals with the inquiries, or Fred deals with it, or but there's no rigor, there's no analysis, there's no quantification of, of numbers and trends and so on. So most businesses operate on the operations bit. They focus on, we're good at what we do, we do it time and time again, we've got a rhythm, we've got a customer base, and that's basically how we make our money. And then the F bit, the finance bit, is kind of turning that into cash at the bank, really. And, and so the first two components, marketing and sales, often are just completely overlooked. So that, for me, is low-hanging fruit. And if you if you clear on that and you do diligence and you plan what to do in that first 90 days, you can start to have quite an impact. Simple things like, when's the last time you put your price up? How many conversations have we had? Oh, no, well, we don't want to upset the customer, you know? Yeah. But if you, if you understand numbers, if you change a gross margin by a factor of 3% and everything else stays the same, the impact on cash at bank is huge. But nobody ever does those maths. Nobody ever thinks about that. And very few customers are going to argue about a 3% price rise, in truth. Yes. So simple things like that that you can just deploy straight away. Again, debtor days, you know, who measure, measures the impact on debtor days? So if you've got customers who, you know, ostensibly sign up to 30-day payment terms but pay you on 60, you bring those debtor days down, again, the impact on cash is significant. And if you, you know, a lot of business owners take huge pride in paying their suppliers almost immediately, yeah, which the suppliers are happy about, but they don't get a discount for doing that. They just pay them because it feels like the right thing to do. <laughs> Fine, but if, you, if you're going to have fast payment terms, get a discount. If you're not, then push the payment terms out. You know, you'll soon find a happy balance where they'll squeal. And if you find that, then it's all about cash management. And the things, the simple things that you can do 
to improve the cash performance of the business gives you then flexibility to reinvest and grow that business. And most business owners, frankly, don't bother because they're all right. And, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not being critical of that at all. But why would they? Because they're in the comfort zone. But for us as a buyer, these are the things that with a little bit of rigor and a little bit of effort can have a massive impact on the business after the deal's done. And then you can invest in the things that the business owner often doesn't. Simple things. Say to the guys coming in, what would make your life better? And they go, mm, could I have two screens for my computer? Yeah, I mean, what's a screen? 100 quid? 150 quid? Most business owners would never invest in a second screen for their staff because they've got a cost-conscious mindset, not an investment mindset. You know, L Real simple things like that. Um, most people, when there's a transition in ownership, they're fearful of what's coming next. And if, you know, we use the term evolution, not revolution. So if you say to people, what would, what would make life better for you from day one, and you start to improve that, they go, well, this is all right. Nothing to fear here. You know, everything stayed the same, and it's just got better. You know, that's, and every business is about its people. You just bought a manufacturing business, yeah? It's not about the machines. It's about the guy that runs the machine. How does he feel? How does he feel when he gets up in the morning? Does he look forward to going to work? Is he excited? Or is he like, same old, same old? He feels happier when you fix his machine, actually. Well, exactly. <laughs> My two screens it's, analysis, yeah? Yeah, no, it's yeah. the same thing. Let, give me the tools, I'll do the job. I'm struggling on yeah. with this crappy yeah, old machine that yeah. no one's ever bothered to fix for the last umpteen years. Phil comes yeah. along and goes, right, let's get that fixed. And he's like, wow. Now my job's yeah. easier. I enjoy it more, you know? And yeah. it's, it's that human component yeah. that's so often... People want yeah. to do a good job. I, I, I'm a huge believer in, in, in the human condition, and I really fundamentally believe most people don't get up in the morning thinking, how can I have a shit day? Mm. Most people get up in the morning thinking, oh, I'd like today to be a good day, yeah. you know? And if we as business owners can foster that environment for them to do that, we'll reap the rewards. On, on a mutual basis, yeah, they'll have absolutely. more fun, we'll have more yeah, fun. Absolutely. It's not a zero-sum game. No. So, thanks very much. Today has been a good day. I want to say thank you very much to Guy for joining me. This has been the Buying and Selling Businesses Show.